This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We mourn the Queen. One would have to live in near-total isolation to have missed the fact of Queen Elizabeth II's death on September 8, 2022. The news media of the world turned toward a castle in Scotland when the Queen passed away and spent hours describing her life story in detail. Some coverage has been respectful. Other reporters have leaned toward the lurid. However, very little, if any, of the coverage has described the Queen's role as one of the last symbols of a once nearly universal system, monarchy. The mission of the Return to Order moment is to relate important events of the day to universal and eternal truths. So today, we will discuss the importance of both monarchy and Queen Elizabeth II. This short podcast begins with the essay that provides its title, Mr. John Horvath's Reflection Upon Her Majesty's Death, We Mourn the Queen. An era has ended. Queen Elizabeth II is dead, and the world mourns. We can say that the 20th century officially ended as the last pillar of the post-war order fell. The Queen had her defects. In remembering her, some decry many of her political decisions. Others point to the deplorable things that happened under her reign or the scandalous behavior of royal family members. However, we must look beyond person and policy to understand her symbolic role in a chaotic world. Elizabeth II was not just a political figure. She represented the ideal United Kingdom to the world. When she appeared on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, vast crowds of all persuasions stretched as far as the eye could see and would wildly acclaim her. Indeed, what presidents could claim such devotion and popularity from the people? Somehow, the Queen projected the image of a fairy tale monarch that captured the imagination. That was her most important role. In those sublime moments of public contact, we could glimpse a brilliance that transcended her person. The British saw in her the symbol of their glory. This shining symbolic representation was one reason she was so beloved and esteemed. She was not known for her formulation of public policy or political agendas. Seeing her, however, the people saw something of themselves reflected. She knew how to take the qualities, virtues, and convictions needed by the British people and give them expression. Her presence served to draw the nation together by being the distillation of what it meant to be British. We need such symbols and ideals because they allow us to imagine the world as it should be. They give us a goal toward which to aspire, even though we realize that we will always fall short due to our fallen nature and the limitations of reality. Thus, by living up to her role as a symbol, the Queen set the tone of society, influenced fashion, and defined standards of excellence. Her Majesty reflected centuries of good taste, refinement, good manners, and civility. 
She practiced the sacrifice of always appearing dignified and proper in public, even when the rest of the world abandoned this much-needed sacrifice. Thus, she is remembered more as the ideal fairy tale queen everyone imagined her to be than the person that she actually was. This ability to be a representative figure allowed her to exercise another role that is proper to her office. The queen was also beloved and esteemed because she knew how to represent Christian majesty well. The end of the state is the ordering of the common good, and thus those entrusted with authority exercise a supreme mission with intrinsic dignity and majesty. Since all authority comes from God, it should be surrounded by ceremony and splendor to better mirror the divine majesty. The queen exercised her authority with calm and benevolent majesty. Indeed, her reign represented the remnants of medieval pageantry that gave her office authenticity, brilliance, vigor, and dignity. She reminded the world of a splendorous Christian civilization rejected by modern vulgarity and egalitarianism. This splendor contrasts with the demagoguery of clownish modern leaders who present caricatures of real authority. Most politicians follow Rousseauian models that imagine power coming not from God, but from the fickle whims of the popular will. The queen sacrificed herself by living up to the dignity and majesty of her office. It filled her reign with beauty and stability. Until the last days of her life, she carried out her duties with touching self-abnegation, solicitude, and affection. Her beloved reign endured for over 70 years— during which she saw 15 prime ministers, 14 presidents, and seven popes in office. We live in a postmodern egalitarian world that detests everything the queen represented. Political leaders today no longer want the arduous task of being a symbol. They are no longer capable of representing the sublime aspirations of their respective peoples or want to display the majesty and dignity of their offices. Even the surviving royals cannot live up to her standard of dedication and excellence. The Queen stood out because few leaders today think beyond their self-interests. We are left as orphans inside a world political order that does not represent us or present us with sublime ideals. Everywhere, many crave those symbols and ideals that give meaning and purpose to political and social life. Thus, the Queen was loved and esteemed far beyond the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth's 2.3 billion people. All those orphans who yearned for the ideals she represented could find in her a queen they could call their own. In a world filled with vulgarity and narcissism, they could always look to her and ask that God save the queen, that ideal queen representing a splendorous and dignified world. Those orphans looked to her simply as the queen. Thus, 
It was not only the United Kingdom's queen who died on September 8th, but also the queen of all who saw her as a symbol of order, albeit imperfect, in a world of chaos and disarray. We mourn because a great pillar of devotion to duty, grace, and majesty has fallen, and there is no one to take her place. In contrast to the tone of Mr. Horvath's essay, some people on both sides of the Atlantic see monarchy as outmoded, archaic, and largely useless. These people scoff at those Americans, myself included, who have a deep interest in the British monarchy. What is, after all, the value of a largely symbolic monarchy? When Prince George Windsor who will, God willing, one day become King George VII, was born, Mr. Gary Isbell wrote a short essay in which he tried to answer the question, Who cares about the British monarchy? As the world delights with its first glimpse of the British monarchy's new heir, naturally no one is more proud and interested than the British. But they are not the only ones who care about the new royal. Americans are running a close second. We fought a war with Britain, declared our independence, and explicitly rejected all titles of aristocracy in our Constitution. But now we care about who is third in line for the throne? One might ask if this interest is the fruit of nurture or nature, and it certainly does not appear to be nurture as Americans in general have not been educated to understand what a monarchy is all about. So why this profound and lively interest in the new prince? There is something to be said for the notion that all men implicitly know that we are all equal in our essence and unequal in our accidents. It is through our accidents that men distinguish themselves from one another, and that royalty does, well, royally. Some might argue the Marxist line that all monarchs are nothing more than selfish strongmen who impose their will upon the oppressed proletariat. While this is true of socialist dictators, it does not match the historical record regarding most monarchies. What really characterizes a monarch is the ability to personify his people as a symbol. That is why, even in an age of declining democracy, the monarch survives with great popularity all over the world. Its dominance does not rest upon oppression, but rather on the monarch's ability to represent a people and convey an ideal image of his nation to the world. While there is no doubt that people prefer a holy king to an evil one, this possibility should not be a reason for abolishing the institution, any more than it should serve as a reason for eliminating presidents. Abuses exist and will always exist, but as the maxim goes, abuse does not take away use of a thing. Sometimes it is better to deal with the problem of bad government carefully rather than take drastic measures that can quickly lead a country to anarchy. It might even be argued that the political structure of America is not completely democratic. 
One example of this is the election of our president, who is not elected by popular vote. Rather, the Electoral College elects him. Even the institution of the presidency itself is a quest for a single ruler who will represent the best of America. Consequently, we still look to one man to solve the majority of our problems, not a consortium of committees. We yearn for a leader who authentically embodies American values, that is, a person who is the quintessence of our natural virtues, culture, and temperament. We look for one who most authentically understands us because he is one of us. While we might not make this explicit, we are looking for a kind of king. Though the duties of a monarch will vary from one culture to the next, there are qualities that are usually expected from them. These can be summed up in a few words. To reign, govern, and protect through heroic self-abnegation for the common good. The monarch is a public person who serves as a point of reference for a people over long periods of time. It is much harder to get excited about a president, since a new one gets elected every four years. And so we face the paradox of Americans who admire a new little prince. Perhaps it is because the closest royal figures we can identify with are the British. Seeing their new prince connects us with a solid link to the traditions, manners, and customs of the culture from which we were born and reassures us that these things have a future because, in reality, we care about the monarchy. As Mr. Horvat pointed out in the essay that introduced this podcast, the Queen had her defects. Many unfortunate and a few truly awful events happened during her monarchy. Sometimes, in the name of the British people, she awarded people whose work diminished society and ridiculed virtue. In 1964, the founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, examined the work of a monarch so great that the church recognized him as a saint. His justly deserved fame was so great that among many other accolades, a major American city, St. Louis, was named after him. We conclude this episode of the Return to Order moment with Professor Plinio's St. Louis IX, Crusader and Statesman. August 25th is the Feast of St. Louis IX, King, Confessor of the Faith, Crusader, and Model of a Catholic Head of State. There are two different ways people picture St. Louis IX. One is as he truly was. The other is a soft, effeminate distortion of his person. This dichotomy is similar to the one that exists between many artist renditions of St. Pius X and pictures of him. On the one hand, the photographs portray a giant of a man, a strong soul, and a spiritual king, 
conscious of his dignity. On the other hand, many artists depict a feeble old grandfather whose face begs pardon for being Pope and regrets that he is not a simple priest. There is an abyss between this limp-wristed portrayal and the historic St. Pius X, who was the hero against modernism. The same holds true with St. Louis IX. On one hand, he is portrayed distributing justice under the famous oak tree in Vincennes, like a king that lived under the trees and preferred to sit around rather than lead the life of the castle, administrate the affairs of state, and wage wars amid the pomp and ceremonial incumbent on the first kingdom of Christendom. In these portrayals, he softly sits in judgment, certainly pardoning everyone, and dealing only with simple things that do not require shrewdness, ingenuity, or force of will. This has become the preponderant image of St. Louis IX. The peasants who surround him are infected with the same softness. By association, the whole medieval world is portrayed in a clownish way consisting of soft kings surrounded by mountains of softness. The enemies of Christian civilization skillfully use this representation to denigrate the kings who succeeded St. Louis. He was good because he was simple, they say. He just sat under his tree and judged. To repel this false image, it is good to remember the real St. Louis IX, who was both a statesman and a crusader. St. Louis IX was king of an organic monarchy. He was not a hands-off ruler who abandoned state affairs to his vassals, but rather one who knew his rights and responsibilities and was protective of them. When his vassals sought to confront or diminish his authority, he resisted them to maintain royal power. Nevertheless, he was also a great defender of the feudal lord's autonomy in his fiefs. Once, while visiting a church, noisy patrons of a nearby pub began a ruckus that disturbed his prayer. When asked to give orders that the commotion stop, he responded, Tell my men to find the lord of this fief and ask him to restore order. Although it would have been easier for him to give the command directly as king, his respect for feudal customs and all degrees of hierarchy would not allow him to interfere with the local governance. Out of love for the organic nature of society, he scrupulously maintained the feudal structure. In this, he was very different from later French kings, like Louis XIV, Louis XIII, Henry IV, and even Louis XI, who systematically destroyed that same structure. St. Louis also protected the guilds and made them assent to a rule drafted from custom-based directives. This gave structure to these autonomous organizations. Thus, 
while supporting every legitimate independent power in his kingdom, he remained its gravitational center. St. Louis even defended his royal power against the Holy See. He confronted the Vatican for interfering in the strictly temporal affairs of France, pressing the issue until it retreated. When this was studied during the process for his canonization, he was vindicated. As a warrior, St. Louis fought on two crusades and died of pestilence in Tunis. Sick and bedridden, he died defeated and tearful, while the whole world had pity on him. This sad story is historic, but not complete. St. Louis was also the king described by Jeanville, who departed for the Crusades in all his magnificence, dominating his whole army, and vested from head to foot in brilliant gold armor. When his boat first approached the Egyptian coast, his enthusiasm was such that he could not wait for the vessel to touch land. He threw himself fully armed into the sea and ran ashore to press the attack before his men reached land. This and other actions have immortalized him as a perfect warrior. This image must be considered together with the image of the wounded soldier, sick and suffering, who became vulnerable by imitating the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only the combination of all these aspects can give an adequate image of King St. Louis IX. As model statesman and crusader, St. Louis was loved and even venerated by his people. There is touching evidence of this. Though medieval coins are rare, the most common of all are those minted during the reign of St. Louis. Since his effigy was on these coins, his people kept them as a medallion and remembrance of his reign. They guarded these coins so carefully that many have survived. These outnumber all other coins of the epoch. This demonstrates how a truly virtuous leader lifts his people up with him. There is a beautiful prayer written to St. Louis by one of St. Joan of Arc's companions in arms. Though written years after St. Louis' death, it gives an idea of how great he was. Keep me pure as the lily engraved on your coat of arms, O thou who kept thy word even when given to the infidel. Never allow a lie to pass my lips, even should frankness cost me my life. Men of prowess, incapable of retreat, burn the bridges that lead to my excuses, so that I will always advance toward the most arduous part of the battle. This concludes We Mourn the Queen. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, 
Please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, T.F.P.